bacon. Just do, the, do me a favor. I think some of you are still getting some bacon. On the count of three, everybody, let's just say the word bacon. And I want you to say it very mindfully. Be, be in the moment as you say the word bacon. One, two, three. Look, you, you, everyone just smile. You, you, you just say the word. And you just smile a little bit more when you say the word bacon. It doesn't matter what meal you're taking. Bacon is making it better. Bacon makes everything better. Even if you like, if you're like me, you're not necessarily a naturally predisposed vegetable guy. I'm not, but I mean, you you take something like Brussels sprouts, Ugh. spawn of Satan, Brussels sprouts. You put a plate of Brussels sprouts in front of me, I'm like, well, you know, I'm getting older, I need to eat them, I will. But you say, Mac, these are shaved Brussels sprouts with bacon in them. I am all over that, like white on rice. Bacon makes everything better, and it is for that reason that today we are kicking off a brand new series of sermons, the series of which is entitled Bacon. Because just as bacon makes everything better in a meal, so a relationship with Jesus Christ makes everything better in life. There is not one part of life that is not enhanced, enriched, and improved by the presence and the power of God Almighty in everything that we do. You see, the challenge is a lot of times, I like to, maybe you do, we sometimes kind of section off parts of our lives. We let God into this part of our lives, but there are these other parts over here. No, 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 no. And we do so at our own peril. That is a cost to us because God helps everything. God makes everything better. Now, I think it's very important as you're picking the pieces of bacon out from between your teeth that we remember that if you push any illustration too far, it will eventually break down. So we're, we're taking this bacon thing only as far as the fact that bacon makes everything better, God makes everything better. Because anytime that we learn, anytime that we teach or discover, we're always moving from what is known to what is not yet known, what is Unknown. You see this in the life and the ministry of Jesus himself. Jesus came teaching and preaching a new covenant. And in order to illustrate the new covenant, he always was looking for imagery, for illustrations, and for, for references that his audience, the people of first century Palestine, could relate to in order to connect them to this new revelation, to this fuller, richer understanding of who God is. And, and as a result of that, Jesus would, would frequently use, he would use everything from, from farming and fishing to fathers and sons and employers and employees. He would talk about coins and sheep and all of these images that they were familiar with in order to teach and, and to preach something that they weren't yet familiar with, to move from what is known to what is not yet known, what is unknown. And so that's what we're doing with this whole series called Bacon. It's a series that actually was born over a year ago in my own prayer life, having nothing to do with getting ready to preach or, or traveling to speak anywhere. I was just reading scripture one day and, and I happened across a passage that I had read who knows how many times before. But on this particular day over a year ago, I mean, it just jumped off the pages of the Bible and hit me between the eyes. And, and it hit me in such a fresh and a new way that, that I, I began to, to think about 
What does that really mean? What, what is it that God's trying to communicate here? If, if we believe that the Bible from Genesis, the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation is the word of God, then everything that is in there is in there on purpose, for a purpose. And, and I was in the book of Psalms. Specifically, I was in Psalm 34. If you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and open up to Psalm 34. Maybe it's on your phone or whatever. But I remember reading this verse, and, and just in my prayer time, I just started I just started praying about and meditating on the Word of God and saying, God, what, what, what does this really mean? What, what is in this that, that I need today that, that's not a part of me yet? What is, what is it that is not yet known that you want to take me from what is known into something fresh and a deeper understanding of who you are? And it was in Psalm 34, verse 8. I'm just going to read to you the very beginning of Psalm 34, 8 because it's the basis. It's kind of our baseline for this entire series called Bacon. Psalm 34, 8 says this, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, <clears throat> what happened for me in that moment over a year ago is I was praying through and meditating on that and I was journaling. I was going, God, Taste and see that you are good. What, what, is that, what does that mean? I, I began to pray and say, what is it that is so good that it's absolutely undeniable? No matter who you are or where you are, just universally, by and large, people love to taste. And in my prayer time with the Lord, the first thing I thought of was bacon. That's just how my mind operates. A little moment of transparency with you. Now, I, I recognize that maybe not 100% of everybody loves bacon, but it, for those who don't love bacon or even like the taste of it, we pray for you. We're starting support groups this very week for those who don't yet love bacon. Because I think it's, it's one of those things most of us, if you just, if you smell bacon, it just makes your day better. And then if you get to taste it, oh man, you just improve the whole week. And if you start your day with it every single day, you are that much farther ahead of the curve on the rest of the world. And I began praying and thinking about it. I go, that's exactly how God is. The more of God that we experience, that we taste, the better everything else works. The, the, the more we enjoy, the more we appreciate him. And it's, it's interesting. I thought about the Westminster Shorter Catechism, something I didn't know about until very much later in my life. The Westminster Shorter Catechism was written in the 17th century, as a teaching tool when most of the population could not read. It was a list of questions and answers that were devised to help people, especially children, but to help everyone understand the basics of Christianity. To not only be able to regurgitate them and say them, but to, but to really understand what it means to have a relationship with God in Jesus Christ. And the first Q&A, the first question and answer in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? Basically, what's our purpose? Why, why are people here? And the answer, of course, from the Westminster Shorter Catechism is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To enjoy God. As if maybe... God's goodness is so pervasive, so complete, so 
undeniable that you and I could actually live in a relationship with God and enjoy God. Now, for some of us, that may be a radical departure from what we walked in the door thinking about God. For some of us, we, we, we know that and we experience it, but I think for all of us, it's an important thing for us to ponder. It's an important thing for us to, to really internalize and spiritually metabolize to say that God wants us, yes, to glorify him. We're created for his glory, for, to honor him. But in glorifying God, in honoring him, we find our fulfillment. We, we discover our purpose and our fulfillment in this world. And in discovering our fulfillment in this world, we actually enjoy God in everything that we do. And the reason we enjoy God is because God is good. Now, the word good is a tricky word for you and me. We, we use the word good usually in a relative sense. I, I'm, I'm a good guy. Well, I mean, compared to him. Or you may say, well, I, I try to be a, a good girl. I, I'm not like, like those people over there. I, I've never killed anybody, technically. But, but I'm, a, I'm a good guy. But when the Bible says that God is good, it is not a relative term. It is an absolute it is not just that God is good as a descriptive, as an adjective, but it is that God is goodness itself. He is the definition of goodness. He is the standard, if you will, of what good really is. And it's imperative that, that we understand that if we're going to taste and see that God is good, if we're going to enjoy the goodness of God, then we have to understand what is packed into that word that is it's not just a relative term God's better than that little g God over there or the Christian faith is more valid than this worldview or system of belief but that God is goodness itself that he is not the embodiment because he is spirit but he is the epitome of absolute goodness and so I want to give you Five things to, to kind of own and understand when we talk about tasting the goodness of God, what do we mean God is good? Five things. I would encourage you to write this down on your notes page that's in the program that you got because this is one of those things that we're going to use every single day. This is one of those things we're going to come back to as we get to know God better, not just knowing about God, but knowing him and, and interacting with him relationally. Number one, the Lord is good means that God is just. That God is just. That means it's a reference to God's morality. That he is absolutely just. Whenever God issues a judgment or renders a verdict, you don't have to wonder about whether or not it's fair or right. How many of you are parents in the room? Let me see a show of hands if you're a mom or a dad. How many times as parents have we heard our kids, particularly our older ones, say the following? Mom, dad, that's not. Oh, we hear it all the time, don't we? You know what I used to tell Emily and Joseph when they were in our household? They go, you know what fair is? Fair is something you pay to ride the bus. I'm going to do my best to be just, but fair, 
My job is to help you get ready for a world that is absolutely unfair. If you're looking for fair, you're in the wrong place, sugar. Because you and I live in a fallen world. God, on the other hand, is always just. He is the God of justice. So when he renders a verdict, you can know it is absolutely just. It is absolutely right. God is just. Number two, a great, great counter to number one. God is merciful. God is merciful. He is a God of mercy. He is absolutely just. He, he will not relax his standard of goodness. I'm going to come back to that in a, in a minute. And, everybody say and. and. It's not a but, it's an and. And he is merciful. The book of Lamentations. The Bible says, morning by morning, new mercies I see. That means that every single day that you and I wake up and, and are drawing breath on this earth, it's an opportunity to see the mercy of God in a new and a fresh way. It's an opportunity to go, look at what God's done. Number one, he gave me another day. That's, a, that's an act of mercy itself. He is, he is a God of mercy. How many of you have, in, let's say in the last year, 12 months, 365 days from right now, how many of you have lost your temper with somebody close to you? Somebody close. I'm raising my hand for Julie, my wife. I'm teasing, I'm teasing. If you're not raising your hand, we're starting support groups for liars this coming week. But do you know what it's like when you, when you, when you lose it? And maybe you fly off a handle or you say something in the heat of the moment that you know as the words are coming out, you, you shouldn't say, and yet there they go. And then you've got to circle back around to that person and say, man, I've I just got to tell you, I, I'm sorry. I blew it. I was wrong. It was fascinating when Emily and Joseph were growing up in those moments when I would blow it as a dad, when <clears throat> I would have to circle back to my kids. I go, man, I, I got to tell you something. I was wrong earlier. I was right in what I said, but I was wrong in the way that I said it. You still messed up, but I messed up in the way that I tried to help you get better. And so I'm sorry, and I'm asking you to forgive me. It was fascinating to watch their response. Now, and as they grew up and they matured, they, they, they started to forgive a little quicker, but, but there was always that little hesitation where they're kind of like, I got the power now. I'm, I'm going I'm to kind of hang on to this forgiveness for just a second. Dad, I'll think about it and I'll get back to you. But you know, when we, when we extend mercy to each other, we're imitating, we're mimicking the character and personality of God. The Bible says, be kind to one another, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. You see, God is merciful. It's an expression of his grace. Grace, of course, being undeserved kindness, undeserved favor. God's merciful. Number three, God is reliable. When we taste the goodness of God, part of what we're ingesting is the fact that he is reliable. 
You and I strive to be consistent in our character and our choices, to, to be ethical, to be consistent. God is constant. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He is constant. He is always reliable. If he says he will do something, if he says he is something, you know he will do it and he is that. God is reliable. Number four, God is sufficient. He is sufficient. He is our all in all. Everything that we need is found in him, is delivered from him. He is sufficient. And then number five, God is excellent. To say that God is good, we say God is excellent. And not in a, in a Bill and Ted's excellent adventure kind of way, but, but in, a, in a supremacy kind of a way. To say that he is the name above every name. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. There is no one like him. There is no name like his name. There is nothing run-of-the-mill, standard, common, or pedestrian about our God. He is the God of excellence. He's the God of excellence. And so it's important that we understand to, to taste and see that the Lord is good it is not just a, a quaint little phrase that David wrote down in a psalm because it rhymed in the Hebrew. But the, but the goodness of God is, is deep. It is rich. It is full. And, and there's, there's depth there to plumb that none of us, none of us will ever get to the bottom of. But we can absolutely taste it. We can absolutely experience it. We can absolutely know it. But, but, but here's where I need to, I need to just kind of give you a little warning, just, just a little heads up, a little caveat, if you will. And it's this. As good as God is, every single one of us, left to our own devices, on our own, by ourselves, we are all disconnected from the goodness of God. We're disconnected from the goodness of God because you and I, are born into this world spiritual heirs of a, of a deep spiritual legacy of brokenness. We, we've all inherited this. And it, it's, that, it's that predisposition towards the self, towards our own self-protection, our own self-preservation, our own self-promotion, which means by definition we're disconnected from the goodness of God. I've got it. You've got it. All God's chillin' have this disconnect in our lives. It's a reality that, that we've got to understand if, if we're really going to taste the true goodness of God. Look in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Rome, inspired by the Holy Scripture, Holy Spirit, Verses 10, 11, and 12, and then also verse 23. The Bible says, as the scriptures say, no one. Say no one. Yes. Now, real quick, take a time out. Take that down. Take it 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 down. Thank you. Tell your neighbor right now with passion and enthusiasm, no one means you. Okay. Now we can put the verse back up there. No one is righteous. 
Not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. No one is righteous. God's glorious standard is righteousness. Righteousness just means moral perfection. No one is righteous. How many of y'all remember the movie, Ferris Bueller's Day Off? One of the greatest movies of all time. Remember the principal's assistant when she was describing Ferris to the principal? All the kids like him. They think he's a righteous dude. Well, cute in a movie, contradictory to Scripture. No one is righteous. Ferris Bueller wasn't righteous. You're not righteous. I'm not righteous. We have all fallen short. Have a nice day. Thanks for coming. Because I know some of you are thinking, well, that's, that's kind of harsh. That's, that's not very encouraging, Pastor. I, I mean, you know, we started out with bacon, and it felt good and kind of smelled good, and now all of a sudden... I, that's not the end of the story. That, that's just part of the story, but it's a big, big part. And that's, that's the problem with the goodness of God is our disconnect from it. But the solution to our problem is also found there in Psalm 34. What did it say? It said, taste, taste and see that the Lord is good. It means partake of him. Enter into this relationship with Jesus to discover the goodness of God. It's, it's an amazing, it's this, it's this spiritual taste test invitation. It's an invitation to a spiritual taste test. You know, now most of you, you probably remember if you grew up, I'm, I'm almost 50 and kind of my generation, maybe even a little bit, half a generation below, you remember the four food groups? Remember when in school, whatever that was, third, fourth, fifth grade, when they taught us the four food groups? Well, <clears throat> in our household, when my son Joseph was a toddler, he didn't eat the four food groups. He ate four food. Four foods total in all of the world was all Joseph would eat when he was a toddler. And I'm going to tell them to you. French fries, pasta with butter, French fries, pasta with butter. What was the other one? Chicken nuggets. And green beans if they had enough ketchup on them. That's a true story. His mother told him that they were just like french fries, but they were green. <laughs> Things you can get away with with a toddler. That's a true story. French fries, pasta with butter, chicken nuggets, and green beans if they had enough ketchup on them. Now, over the years, Joseph matured. He grew up. His, his palate expanded. I even remember last year, the first time he came home from college, the four of us all went out to eat. Joseph ordered a salad. What? We looked at him and said, where's our son and what have you done with him? But sometimes, if we're not careful, if we're not really deliberate, we, we go to God like a picky toddler. 
we're like, I'm, I'm going to try the goodness of God over here from, from the grace and the forgiveness part. I love that mercy thing. That is awesome. And, and as long as, as long as, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, worshiping God with other people, as long as I don't get a better offer and there's no kids' sports events on the weekend, I'll do that. Yeah, I'll take that. That'll be good. When in reality, all of the goodness of God makes all of the life that you and I live better. When we pick and choose, we miss out on the goodness of God. It's all there for the taking. And so what I want you to do, go back to the list that we just wrote down, the justice, the mercy, the reliability, the sufficiency, and the excellence of God. What we want to do now is look at how do we taste those things? How do we experience those in our lives? Number one, to taste God's justice requires our trust. We've got to trust God's justice. We've got to trust God's justice more than we trust our justice. How many times have we heard or maybe even said ourselves, well, if God will do dot, 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 then I can't go there. Well, that's not your shot to call. You see, the problem is we want a good God on our terms. I, I want to define what a good God is, and that's not my job. God is the God who is good. He gets to decide what good is. He is God. I am not. And so he gets to decide the definition, that standard of goodness. We, we, want, we want God to be good on our terms, which in effect makes us little g gods. We're determining right and wrong, just and unjust, fair and unfair. That's God's job. We, we never get in the business of judging other people's behavior, motives, character. That's God's business. He, he takes care of all of that for us, but we've got to trust him to do that. And when we trust him, then we taste the justice. We taste the, the goodness that is God. Number two, to taste God's mercy requires our repentance. To taste the mercy of God requires our repentance. It's not enough to just say, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food, forgive me of my sins. Cool, here we go. No, no, no. To really know the mercy of God, the grace of God, we have to repent of our sin. To repent means not only to be sorry for it, but to change direction. It's a military term in the original Greek. A, a repentance is an about face. You go 180 degrees when you're walking this direction away from God towards sin. Repentance is turning away from sin and walking toward God. You change your behavior. I change my behavior. I change what I'm doing. What I'm doing that takes me away from God, I stop doing. What I'm not doing that is keeping me from God, I start doing repentance triggers the mercy and the grace of God. And it's, it's, it's there, but we have to, we have to repent. We, we can't just like show up at church once a week and kind of be a good guy. We've got to live according to what God says. Number three, to taste God's reliability requires our obedience. To taste the reliability of God requires 
obedience. Obedience is God's love language. It's how he receives our love, our worship, our trust. When we live our lives surrendered to Scripture, parallel with what he has shown us in the Bible, then we begin to discover how absolutely reliable he is. I've known this for a long, long time, but it really came into a fresh light for me a couple of years ago when our friend Andy Andrews was here. And Andy said something the night that he spoke at a, at a fearless family event that I'll never forget. He said that a lot of times we will not understand Scripture until we practice Scripture. Once we put into practice what the Bible says, then we start to understand why the Bible says. We get that process mixed up. A lot of times we'll say, well, if I understood why it was in the Bible, then I would do it. When in reality... We trust Scripture, we trust God, and surrender our lives to the authority of Scripture. And in so practicing Scripture, we begin to understand, this is why it was in there. How many of you growing up, not right now, of course, if you're a student, but those of us who are older, thought your parents were nuts? At some point, you were like, Man, I don't know how they tie their shoes in the morning. You know what I'm talking about? But as we get older, and we start to have kids of our own, have you ever been in the middle of a conversation with your pre-adolescent or high school, middle school student, child, student, and, and been like, in the middle of the words, you're like, this is what my dad meant. <laughs> I'm going to have to call him and apologize later on. You ever, you ever had those kind of moments? Trusting God as our good, good Father. The one who knows and understands us better than we know and understand ourselves. The one who created the world and shows us how this world works best in Scripture. It's obedience. Number four, to taste God's sufficiency requires our contentment. Our contentment. I have never, ever met anyone, including myself, who has wrestled the contentment monster to the ground once and for all. I think that's something that we continuously have to work on and keep in focus and keep prayed on. And that, that can it sometimes get frustrating, but I think it also, also could be really encouraging because we're in very, very good company. If contentment is something that you wrestle with, you're in really good company because the Apostle Paul wrestled with it. He, he said in, in the Bible, he said, I have learned to be content in all things, whether in plenty or in poverty. I, I've learned how to be content, which means, by the way, he didn't always have it down. He, he figured it out. He, he went from what was unknown into what was known. He learned contentment. Contentment is a statement of faith that says, God, you have at this moment entrusted to me everything I need. That's contentment. Everything I need, God has entrusted to me. Discontentment is a statement of unfaith. Discontentment means God messed up. I must need some more. There must be more, more, more that God for some reason is holding out on me. <laughs> That's discontentment. But our contentment 
when we get to that place and we choose to be in that place where, you know what, God's given me enough, I'm going to continue to work. I'm going to continue to honor him and to glorify him. I'm going to continue to set goals. That's fine. But I'm going to be content in my heart, in my life, right here where I am. Because God has entrusted to me everything that he's decided I need right now. When we get to that place, then we start to taste the sufficiency of God. God then becomes enough in and of himself, our all and all. And then number five. To taste the excellence of God, to taste the excellence of God requires our awe, our awe, a, a sense of, of wonder, a sense of amazement at who he is, at what he does. I think that's part of the reason that, that some of us like to vacation at the beach or in the mountains. There, there's something about, man, I, I've got a good friend who goes to Colorado every summer when it starts to get really hot here in Austin. He loves him some mountains. And he's told me, he said, you know, Mac, I don't know what it is, but when I'm in the mountains, I, I just, it's like I can sense the presence of God. And, and I just look around and, and those mountains are so awesome. It's how I feel when I'm on the ocean, when I get to fish. And, and you, you sense the, the power and the beauty of, of the waves and the wind and the ocean and that sense of awe. I, I think that probably is, is really at the heart of something that Jesus said. Remember in the book of Matthew, he said that his followers, his tribe of faith, need, needs to always have the faith of a child. You know, kids, kids never lose their sense of wonder or awe. It's only after we start to, we start to grow up and we, we let the busyness of life, we let the jadedness of life, we let circumstances choke out a sense of wonder and awe. But kids, man, they're like, are you kidding me? Did you see those cupcakes? They were awesome. Are you joking me? Joseph, I, this, is, this is one of my favorite things about Joseph. Until he was about 17, Joseph never saw a movie that he didn't love. Every movie he ever went to, it was awesome. And his big sister was like, please, are you serious? He just, he loved being in the theater. He loved anytime there were, there were screens and images and lights and popcorn and m and he, he was all in. And, and I remember watching, I go, man, I wish I was more like that. I, I, need, I, need, I, need a, I need more of that wonder and sense of awe in my life. But when we transfer that and we start to experience that in relationship with God, and we, we, we sense the awe and we can, Maybe just stand and watch a, a thunderstorm roll in or watch our kids sleeping at night. Or, or maybe we look back on our lives and we see all of the ways that God protected and provided and promoted and, and, and all the things that he did when we didn't even know to ask him to do them and we just go, I don't deserve any of that. I'm just, I'm just in awe of your goodness. I'm in awe of, of who you are and what you do. And I just, I just, all I'm going to do is worship you. When we see just, just who he is and, and how he operates, and when we, when we cultivate and live in that sense of awe and wonder at who he is, then all of a sudden we start to taste his excellence. We, we see it in everything. 
How many, how many of us know that, that what you look for, you find? If you're, if you're looking for the excellence of God, you're going to find it. If you're looking for the goodness of God, you will absolutely taste it. Isn't it amazing what you can get out of one piece of bacon? Just bacon. Taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He is goodness itself. Now I know that here in our hometown, we're entering into a busy season. ACL festivals the next couple of weeks. Texas beats OU the week after that. Amen. I know that there are a lot of things competing for your time, but I want to I challenge you. Make this time a priority. You and I can't get enough of the goodness of God. We need each other. We need this reminder of his goodness. We need to remember how truly awesome he is. I want to ask everybody, if you will, just bow your heads for a moment, just a moment. With nobody moving, nobody stirring for any reason, if you would, please, please just, just stay right where you are and protect this moment. Because it's a sacred moment. Because for some of us, it's an opportunity to take stock. To take stock and to see, is there any part of my life that I'm preventing God from making better? Is there any part of my life that I don't like the, the taste of it or the texture right now? Because a relationship with God makes it all better. Improving enriching all of it if you're here today and you've never stepped into a relationship with Christ you've never committed your life we want to give you the opportunity to do that right now just to pray right where you're sitting a prayer of beginning a prayer of commitment just between you and God if that's you you just Right where you're sitting right now, we just invite you to pray silently. Something like this in your own words. Just, just talk to God. Just say silently. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I need your goodness. And so I confess my sin to you to claim your forgiveness. I choose to believe that you died on the cross for me. And I choose to believe that you rose again for me. And I accept. In exchange for your life, I give you mine. And I will follow you from this moment forward. 
Jesus, I pray this prayer in your name. I want to ask you just to remain with your heads bowed and your eyes closed for just a moment. And if that was your prayer, this is the greatest moment of your life. And it's a moment that I want to invite you to mark. First of all, marking marking this moment with the connect card that's in the program that you got when you came in. It's a way to connect into the, the tribe of faith, the family of faith that is this church. Because while it's true God meets you right where you are, he always does so in the context of a community and a family. And so as a church, we want to help in this new relationship. So if you'll just take that connect card that's in the program, just fill it out. And about halfway down, there's a place there to indicate I've committed my life to Christ this week. You fill that out, tear it off at the perforation. And before you leave today, just hand it to one of our ushers. They've got one of those cool bacon shirts on. Just, just hand it to them and say, hey, today was my day. But then second of all, I want to invite you, if you just stepped into a relationship with Christ and you prayed that prayer, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed in this moment of reverence, if you would just just raise your hand quietly but, but boldly, unmistakably, just raise your hand up high over your head and hold it there for a moment. And as you do that, you, you stamp this moment this moment in your life, but also this moment in the life of this church. Because there's nothing more important to us than that which God just did in your life and your response to it. And so as a church, as a a family of faith around you, we celebrate that. We honor that. As you put your hands down, we put our hands together just to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home. Welcome home.